have you back. Open your Bibles up to Malachi. That's right. Malachi. Malachi chapter 4. Malachi chapter 4. Malachi is the last of the Old Testament prophets. He wrote this short book sometime around 433 B.C. This is the final revelation of God in the Old Testament. Malachi. Malachi chapter 4, verses 5 and 6. Behold, I'm going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. And he will restore the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and smite the land with a curse. Keep your thumb there and turn to the right a couple of pages to Matthew chapter 3. Matthew chapter 3 and verse 1. Now in those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. And what I want you to do is I want you to hold up the pages between Malachi 4 and Matthew 3. Go ahead and hold them up just for your own visual edification. Perhaps it's a couple of pages. Maybe if you have a study Bible with some sort of intertestamental abbreviated history, you've got five or six pages. But I can guarantee you there are not many pages that separate Malachi 4 and Matthew 3. And yet, 400 years separate those two texts. In a matter of just a couple of pages, 400 hundred years, four centuries pass. For us, that would be the equivalent of going back to 1611. 1611. A lot has happened in America since 1611. It's before the landing at Plymouth Rock. Let me review for you just ever so briefly the events and the history of this land in the last 400 years. There are many ways that we could do this. I've chosen to do it by wars. I've chosen it because they are so frequent and memorable. 1620, the Mayflower. 1620 for the Mayflower. 1775 to 1783, the Revolutionary War. 1812 to 1815, what is known as the War of 1812. 
We had to fight the British twice in order to show them who's boss. 1861 to 1865, the Civil War. The bloodiest conflict in American history. 1917 to 1918, the American involvement in World War I, the Great War, the war to end all wars. 1941 to 1945, American involvement in World War II. 1950 to 1953, the Korean War. 1965 to 1973, the Vietnam War. 1991, the Gulf War. 2001, and still counting, the War on Terror, or perhaps we could say the War in Afghanistan and Iraq. 400 years of warfare. A lot has changed in 400 years. And a lot remains the same. When Malachi put down his pen, figuratively speaking, God closed his mouth. Or maybe I should say it the other way. When God closed his mouth, Malachi put down his pen. That would probably be a more precise way to say it. But when that happened, God went silent. God's silence lasted four centuries for the people of Israel. During that time of God's silence... His hand was invisible, except to those with eyes of faith. We see it illustrated in the book of Esther. The book of Esther. Because it's an interesting Old Testament book in that God's name is never used. It's never mentioned. We can see with eyes of faith the invisible hand of God at work in the book of Esther by God's saving of his chosen people through the insomnia of a pagan king. God was every bit as work at work. And yet there was no prophet in Israel. There was no spoken revelation of God. It was silent. The last words that the people heard For behold, I'm going to send to you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. A little earlier in chapter 3 and verse 1, the prophet writes there, Behold, I'm going to send my messenger who will clear the way before the Lord. So 400 years goes by. God's lips are sealed. And then, in Matthew chapter 3, God speaks again. And he does so through the mouth of one of the most 
mysterious and enigmatic figures of the New Testament. John the Baptizer. John was a very, very strange and puzzling character. He's key. All four Gospels introduce him and write of him. He is absolutely key. And the reason he is key is because his ministry is inseparably linked to the coming of Messiah. Over these next few weeks, as we explore Matthew chapter 3, I want to consider with you this highly significant character known as John the Baptist, a figure who forms the bridge from the Old Testament to the New. He is the one, the prophet of God who clears the way for Messiah. So this morning, we are going to just introduce the man, the man, John the Baptist. The following weeks, we will look at his message together, and we will look at his ministry. But for this morning, in the time that we have, we will merely introduce the man. Matthew chapter 3 and verse 1. Now in those days, John the Baptist came, preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Chronologically, you, you probably know this. I'm pretty sure you would know this, but maybe haven't thought about it. That between chapter 2, verse 23, and chapter 3, verse 1, there are 30 years just gone by. We've moved quickly from the infancy narrative of Messiah to his adult and public ministry. And so approximately 30 years passed in the little white space between 223 and 3.1. Onto the scene comes this man, John the Baptist. Now, what can we know about him? Matthew doesn't tell us a lot here. He just sort of declares him. But in order to get a better picture of who this man is, we we'll need to go and look at other places. And I want to do that with you this morning. Luke provides a lot of detail, a lot of detail. So I'm going to turn you to Luke chapter 1 and verse 5. Luke 1 and verse 5. John was born of priestly descent was born into the family, into the home of the priest. He was born under some amazing circumstances to an old woman named Elizabeth. This woman was a relative of Jesus' mother, Mary. Luke chapter 1 and verse 5. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, There was a certain priest named Zacharias of the division of Abijah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron. And her name was Elizabeth. 
And they were both righteous in the sight of God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and requirements of the Lord. They had no child because Elizabeth was barren and they were both advanced in years. Now it came about. While he, that is Zecharias, was performing his priestly service before God in the appointed order of his division, according to the custom of the priestly office, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. This was his big day. This is what he had trained for his whole life. Today he goes in to the holy place. The whole multitude of the people were in prayer outside at the hour of the incense offering. And an angel of the Lord appeared to him standing to the right of the altar of incense. And Zacharias was troubled when he saw him and fear gripped him. The angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zacharias, for your petition has been heard and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son and you will give him the name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord. And he will drink no wine or liquor. And he will be filled with the Holy Spirit while yet in his mother's womb. And he will turn back many of the sons of Israel to the Lord their God. And it is he who will go as a forerunner before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children and the disobedient to the attitude of the righteous so as to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. That's some kind of angelic announcement of a birth, huh? At his birth, his father, Zacharias, prophesied at length about him. And he prophesied here in chapter 1, verses 76 and 77 specifically, that John would be the one who would bring the knowledge of salvation to his people, to his countrymen. Luke 1, verses 76 and 77. And you, child, this is his father speaking, will be called the prophet of the Most High. For you will go on before the Lord to prepare His ways, to give His people the knowledge of salvation by the forgiveness of their sins. You talk about having a heavy burden in life, huh? From before His birth, this one has been set aside for a very specific task. His parents were old. We're speculating here, but I think we're within the bounds of orthodoxy to assume that his parents probably died while he was still reasonably young. We next encounter him in the preparations for his great prophetic ministry in which he was off by himself in what is known as the deserts or the wilderness of Judea. Verse 80, chapter 1. And the child continued to grow and to become strong in spirit, and he lived in the deserts until the day of his public appearance 
to Israel. This formative period of his life is a mystery. We know nothing about it. Off by himself, in what is known as the wilderness of Judea, a picture here for you so you can get a rough idea what it's like to live in the wilderness of Judea. Can we bring that picture up, please? There you go. We might say he went to college there. The wilderness of Judea, it's a rugged area east of Jerusalem, north of the Dead Sea. It is the area where the Dead Sea Scrolls were subsequently found. Some believe that John was a member of what's known as the Essene community. The Essenes were a group of Jews who were separatists, ascetics, who, who intentionally separated themselves off to this rather remote part of the world in order to avoid contamination by the Hellenistic, the Greek culture that was overwhelming the people of Israel. So some believe that John was profoundly influenced by the Essenes, but that is only speculation. There is no evidence to support that. But we do know the text tells us he lived in the deserts or the wilderness of Judea. This is where this man came of age. You can see little caves there in the picture, so perhaps that's where he lived. During his time there, God shaped this man. All alone, separated off, no doubt conscious of the prophecies that had been given before and after his birth. He was alone by himself. And God shaped this man for the great prophetic work that he would undertake. When he finally appears on the world stage, John is a man of, of singular focus. Next week, as we look at his message, it's one of the shortest sermons you'll find in the New Testament. It's very direct. John was a direct sort of guy. Limited vocabulary, I think. Singular focus, but also profound humility. Profound humility. Turn with me to John's Gospel, chapter 3, and verse 30. And I probably should say this right now. For some who might not have made the connection yet, but John's gospel and John the Baptist, they are not the same person. Okay? I didn't know that, by the way, in the early time after I became a follower of Christ. Heard about John the Baptist, saw John's gospel, assumed they were the same person. They are not. They are not the same person. 
Here in John's Gospel, chapter 3, there is a confrontation happening between the followers of Jesus and the followers of John. Verse 25, there arose a discussion on the part of John's disciples with a Jew about purification. And they came to John and they said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you beyond the Jordan, that is Jesus, to whom you have borne witness, behold, he is baptizing and all are coming to him. Here's the idea. Rabbi, teacher, these are the followers now of John the Baptist. You are losing popularity. You baptized that guy, remember him. And now everybody is following him. And in fact, he's baptizing, he and his disciples are baptizing more than we and our disciples are baptizing. And so that's not good. I think you should do something about that. And so John responds, verse 30. He must increase, but I must decrease. John understood his role in salvation history. He understood himself to be a bridge, to be a forerunner, to be a herald, to be one who goes before Messiah. And that once he had accomplished his task, His role was done. His job was done. When I think about this man, John the Baptist, and and his life as best I can understand it from Scripture, I, I can't help but think about how hard a life the man had. It was anything but a life of ease. And even when he began to see some fruit in his ministry and and some sort of popularity growing, it was at that point that it is swept away. And he responds with incredible humility, one that challenges, I think, all of us. He must increase. I must fade away. I can't help but think of the quote by A.W. Tozer. It's a pastor who lived in the first half of the 20th century. He said this, quote, It is doubtful whether God can bless a man greatly until he has hurt him deeply. Thanks for the ministry advice. Right? It's doubtful that whether God can bless a man greatly unless he has hurt him deeply, unless he has broken him. John was a broken man. God had, in the furnace of affliction, in the wilderness of Judea, had boiled away the impurities of this man that he might be someone great. He lived a very simple life, a very stern life, a life reminiscent of the Old Testament prophets. 
Back to Matthew 3. It's really interesting how Matthew illustrates this for us. Matthew 3, verse 4. Now John himself had a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. That's right. A camel hair garment, a leather belt, and locusts and honey. You talk about a weight loss diet, right? You got to be some kind of hungry to eat that. This is a man without any of the luxuries of life. None. Over in chapter 11, verse 18 of Matthew's gospel, we have another little statement that kind of gives us an insight into his life. 1118. Jesus speaking of John the Baptist, he said, For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say he has a demon. Meaning that he did not participate in the, in the normal pleasures of life, eating and drinking. His life was stern. His life was austere. And he was so singularly focused upon his task and his mission and his message was so short and pointed, they said, this guy has got a demon. He's possessed. He's out of his mind. Well, yes, out of his mind and no. He had been given a task by God. John dressed, by the way, like an Old Testament prophet by the name of Elijah. If you go to 2 Kings chapter 1, we'll turn you back there. And, and by the way, Matthew's readers would make all of these connections. Okay, I'm, I'm making them for us, recognizing we are not steeped in the Old Testament as we should be. But Matthew's original audience of Jewish believers would make all of these connections. Second Kings chapter 1 and verse 8. context here is the wicked king of Israel is being tormented by the prophet Ezekiel, or the prophet Elijah and it says in verse 7 what kind of man was he who came up to you and spoke these words to you? 
They answered him, He was a hairy man with a leather girdle bound about his loins. Now that phrase translated a hairy man, more literally a possessor of hair. It's possible that he was a hairy man in the sense that he had a lot of body hair. I suspect more likely that he was a man clothed in a hairy kind of garment, the robe of the prophet. In fact, it won't turn there. You can mark it down on your own. Check it out in Zechariah 13 and verse 4. It makes an explicit connection to the prophetic robe being the hairy robe. By the way, this guy dressed in this hairy robe with the leather belt or leather girdle bound about his loins, as soon as he's described, they say, it's Elijah the Tishbite. I'd know him anywhere. Anybody who wears that weird clothing, I'd know who he is. He stands out by the way he dresses. And so Matthew picks up on that and gives us that little clue back in Matthew 3. Well, I went looking around on the Internet to find a picture of John the Baptist. Fortunately, someone had a camera back then, and they snapped a, <laughs> a quick photo. It's the only one I could find. Maybe the camera got wet. I don't know. Yeah, there's a, there's a dude in a hairy garment with a leather belt around his waist who looks like he has spent a long time in the wilderness of Judea, right? I mean, he stood out. I mean, he would stand out today to be sure. Well, it depends what part of Venice Beach you go to, I suppose. But... <laughs> But he stood out in his own day. He stood out in his own day. Everything about him screamed Old Testament prophet come to life. Everything. God had been silent for 400 years. Now God is speaking again. And it's as if Elijah himself has, has come back to life to address the nation. Jesus says, by the way, Matthew 11, verse 14. You can turn there if you like. Jesus said he is the fulfillment of the great Elijah prophecy. Matthew 11 and verse 14, if you care to accept it, he himself is Elijah who was to come. Yet, John 1 verse 21, when John began his ministry, he was asked the question directly, are you Elijah? 
John 1, 21, they said to him, they asked him, what then are you, Elijah? And he said, I am not. I am not. Jesus says he is. John says he isn't. Oh, I can't wait to unwrap that mystery. And you'll have to wait. You'll have to wait. He is, and he isn't. He was called by God to preach to his people, to prepare the way for the arrival of Messiah. Luke chapter 3, verse 2. Interesting little statement here about him. Luke 3, verse 2. In the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zacharias, in the wilderness. And he came into all the district around the Jordan preaching. A little phrase I want you to pick up on is the word of God came to John. The word of God came to John. The reason I want you to pick up on that is because that little statement, that little phrase is repeated over and over and over again in the Old Testament. And it speaks of the prophetic call. In fact, this morning, reading the first chapter of Jeremiah, according to the chronological read through the Bible that some of us are doing, Jeremiah chapter 1, I'll just read it to you. Verses 1 and 2, the words of Jeremiah, the son of Hilkiah, of the priests who were in Anathoth in the land of Benjamin, to whom the word of the Lord came. In the days of Josiah, it goes on to say, Now the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you, and before you were born, I consecrated you. I have appointed you a prophet to the nations. Jeremiah had his own prophetic call laid upon him before birth. In space and time, the word of the Lord came to him and set him apart as a prophet to the nation of Israel. And by the way, being a prophet to the nation of Israel was not all that great a job. Fabulous retirement plan, very difficult working circumstances. Same was true for John. The same was true for John. Matthew 3 and verse 3, For this is the one referred to by Isaiah the prophet, saying, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Make ready the way of the Lord, make his path straight. He is the fulfillment of these old prophecies. And that made him, according to Jesus, Matthew 11 and verse 7 and following, In fact, let's just pick it up in verse 11, Matthew 11 and verse 11. According to Jesus, it makes him the greatest 
of the Old Testament prophets. I truly, I say to you, among those born of women, there has not arisen anyone greater than John the Baptist. None. There is not a prophet of God who has ever stepped foot on the scenes of human history greater than this man. Because he is the chosen one. It is to him has been given the responsibility to go before Messiah and announce his presence. John is a culmination of what all the Old Testament prophets looked forward to. It is brought to fruition in John. And in John, their message coalesces around Messiah. He bursts on the scene. His message is simple. It requires no explanation. Chapter 3 of Matthew and verse 2. Repent. It's a one-word message. Repent. Why? For the kingdom of of heaven is at hand. Oh, I can't wait to start to unpack that verse. Let me just leave you with this one observation to think about this week. There is not a word of explanation given. Not one word. There is merely this incredibly direct, short, abbreviated, and forceful statement, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And his audience knew what he was talking about. And there is only one way, my friends, that they could know what he was talking about. And that is to be steeped in the Old Testament and all the ancient prophecies that point forward to this one. John was the forerunner. John was the herald. John was the the advance team that went before Messiah to tell the people to get ready. Messiah is here. And he will save his people from their sins. Do you know him today? Do you know that Messiah? Is your heart ready to receive? Let's pray. Our Father, just an abbreviated look this morning and so much more to be unpacked in the days and weeks to come. What a critical figure this man was. He is the pivot point. He is the linchpin on which turns the hinge of Old and New Testament history. Our Father, his devotion to you was impeccable. 
Our Father, we are stunned when we consider the charge you laid upon him. O Lord, soften our hearts. Let us be willing to hear his message anew. Prepare us in the days and weeks to come. Give us ears to hear. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.